Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive help supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This is the Roy Green Show podcast. Dan Kelly is the president and the chief executive officer of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. He joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. So, Dan, thank you for the time. $11.7 billion, says the Auditor General, Bonnie Lissick for Ontario, the premier says no. It's only six point seven billion because we, we're, we're counting money that's in the in, in the in the teachers' pension plan and another pension plan, uh, employees' union pension plan. What do you say? Well, look, if it's a question between trusting the premier of Ontario and the auditor general of Ontario, I'm I'm going to pick the auditor general. <laughs> the uh, the fact is, well, in addition to the fact that Bonnie Lissick is a fellow Manitoban, so. Uh, you know, I, I trust her implicitly. Uh, the uh, the fact is that uh, that what's going on in Ontario right now is very very scary for taxpayers. It should actually be very scary, Roy, not just for the businesses and and residents that are going to have to pick up the tab for these, these deficits in the future. Today's deficits being tomorrow's taxes. But if I were an Ontario civil servant and the premier was saying, yeah, don't worry about it, the the pension the the pension plans are fine, and the auditor general saying something different. Again, I would be pretty worried. And we've been saying this from CFIB at CFIB for years. I know Catherine Swift has certainly spoken to you many times about this. But these public sector pension plans are ticking time bombs, waiting for us uh, in future years. As Canadians struggle to save enough for their own retirement, we're going to have to start shoveling in huge amounts of new cash for, to, to shore up some of these, these pension funds for civil servants uh, for benefits that we could only dream of ourselves uh, but we're going to be on the hook for it because many of them are dramatically underfunded. And they're going to run, as you say, they're going to run out of money. And at that time, they will need money immediately. And there's only one place that money can come from. And that's from the taxpayer. I think, I think Dan, I think too many people don't really, I may be wrong on this, but I think too many people don't make enough uh, or, or don't, don't make enough noise about deficits. It's almost become acceptable that governments will run deficits. It's happened so regularly that it seems to be routine, but it should not be. And as you say, today's deficits are tomorrow's taxes. You're, you're absolutely right. I mean, look, I, I think when, when, the, when at the federal level, for example, during the last election campaign, when the books looked of the country looked like they were finally back into balance, uh, Trudeau made the case that uh, he was going to run three short-term deficits federally, in order to get the economy, the engine of the economy revving, and then balance the budget in, in after after that. And I think Canadians are, are not afraid of deficits. Like many of us, take out mortgages or or have to take out a car loan or for for some other important uh, purpose. So we're used to deficit financing or borrowing. I don't think there's a prohibition that Canadians have on this. But what we like to see is that governments don't run them indefinitely. And that, I think, is what's changed in Canada over the last little while, or changed back, perhaps, to the way that it was back in the 1980s. We now feel like 
we can run deficits almost indefinitely. At least that's what our federal government and, and the Ontario government have been saying. Uh, geez, after, you know, the, the, the Ontario government had been, had been uh, working reasonably hard, obviously helped by some tax increases, to try to wrestle down the Ontario deficit only uh, to observe that the fact that deficit financing worked for the federal government to pick up the, the mantle once again and say, you know what, we're going to chuck the whole idea of running uh, a balanced budget and go back into deficit spending. That's why I'm not sure that the Premier is actually terribly upset about the fact that the headline is that there are big, big deficits, because I think that's actually what they want the public to know, is that they are prepared to, to spend money on all sorts of things uh, and, and perhaps take the wind out of the sails of the NDP that has t- traditionally been a little less afraid of, of deficit financing. So I'm, I'm not so sure that the Premier is upset by these headlines. Perhaps they even reinforce uh, the message that she's been trying to get out to Ontarians pre-election. Well, six weeks from now, we will know what the score is on all of that. But uh, to have a $5 billion differential between what the Auditor General says and what the Premier says is significant. And then let's not forget that Bonnie Lissick was the head of Manitoba Hydro, uh, and uh, or she was the uh, finance yep. person, right, the money person for Ontario Indeed. Hydro. And, uh, and and so for the Ontario government to say she doesn't understand the hydro financing is just ludicrous. Yeah, yeah. Look, I mean, these hydro utilities uh, are are themselves in big trouble, as is Manitoba Hydro at, at the moment. But uh, but yes, yeah, she certainly knows where the bodies are buried in in uh, in in the in these deficit uh, spending uh, predictions that she's putting out. I think that there this this is uh, going to be a huge issue, regardless of who is elected. In a, couple, in a couple of months' time, there are going to be major concerns. Any party is going to have to start to address this and, and at, at some point have to turn to the tax rules once again to try to, get, uh, to try to get the funding to try to wrestle these things down. Dan, the total debt in this country is out of, is, is out of whack. It's out of line. It's unmanageable. If you look at the federal ta- uh, debt, you look at the provincial debt, you look at personal debt, you look at... Uh, just, just the, the, total, the totality of debt, when you look at increased interest rates, which is now happening, we know that five-year fixed mortgages going up uh, or have gone up with uh, RBC and TD, and they'll go over the rest of them. This is starting to, this, now the chickens are going to come home to roost. It'll be, sure it'll be one or two chickens at first, but then the whole flock's going to arrive. <laughs> well, and look, we don't even have to look terribly far to find examples of that. Right now, uh, the, 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 the funding, the the amount of money that we're paying on interest, that Newfoundlanders and Labradorians are paying on their deficit, exceeds the amount that they're able to put into into their into education, either post, including both post secondary education and primary education. That's pretty scary. That is scary. Even even with low interest rates, which uh, remain low, uh, we're spending. Provinces are spending more on deficits, uh, funding their deficits, their interest on their deficits and debt. Uh, than they are on core programs. And this is why those that do care deeply about social programs and view that as a major priority should also be concerned about that. It isn't just fiscal hawks that should be worried about these kinds of things. People that care deeply about public services, wanting to make sure that, that, that our healthcare system is well-funded and supported and perhaps grown where there are shortages, or feel that there's more energy that's needed for the environment or, or more money that's needed for, for the education system, those, those folks should be concerned about this because what's happening already is that provincial governments are starting to see their expenses crowded out 
by the amount of money that they have to put in uh, to, to pay interest on the debt. Mm-hmm. And I, I have to say, as the governments announce, especially before an election, all these new goodies, uh, many of them on things that Canadians would view as priority, with priorities like, for example, uh, child care issues. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. Dan, what, what's the impact then now on, on small business, on, on your members, and then by extension on the rest of us who depend on small business in Canada in large part to move the economy forward? You know, the, the impact is, is pretty significant. The, uh, you know, and these, these chickens don't come home to roost immediately. It happens over a bit of time. As I said, there's, there's no panic about a short-term deficit, but we're now talking about an environment of long-term deficits, both federally and in, in several provinces like Ontario. When that happens, confidence that the, uh, the taxes will rise starts to, uh, to, go, uh, starts to go down, and fear goes up. We already see, saw a big drop in, uh, in the confidence levels of the business community in our most recent reading of our small business barometer. So that is on, in and of itself a worry. But these, these long-term uh, forecasts, uh, again, they start to spook uh, people that, that have to make long-term decisions. If you're looking to buy a new piece of equipment, you're looking to build a second location, it may start to think twice about whether or not the province that you're in or the country that you're in is the best place in which to do that. And when that starts to happen, obviously the economic opportunities, the jobs that, uh, that are associated with it uh, may, may be a question as well. We've already seen governments doing uh, a lot of little things, but the accumulation of those little things is, is starting to erode a lot of business confidence. We've seen carbon taxes uh, go up, and there's a five-year plan to raise those. We've now seen uh, a lot of people have forgotten that despite the fact that public sector pensions are dramatically underfunded, we start next year, Roy, with a five to seven year plan to increase Canada pension plan premiums every single year. That means on January 1 for the next five years, every Canadian's paycheck will go down and every Canadian employer will have to shovel in a whole bunch more money to match those contributions that comes out of the payroll system. Uh, and then when we start, to ta- and that's without even tackling any of the deficits that, that governments have created. It's really scary. When you put it all together like that, and uh, and you realize the deficit becomes debt, becomes taxes, becomes debt as well. When you put it together the way you just did, Dan, that is a, uh, that's a goulash none of us wants to uh, dive into. <laughs> but it's not as though we have much choice if they continue to spend as voraciously as they are spending, in order to maybe grab a few votes. I, I still believe that uh, what we need is pragmatic politicians who do the best for everybody. But then, you know, I'm, I believe in the tooth fairy, too. But it's, 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 it's something that we really need to pay very close attention to. And when there's a $5 billion difference between the province and the Auditor General, that is not something that should be ignored. Mr. Kelly, always great, great speaking with you. Thank you, Dan. Anytime. You're listening to The Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. Well, Mr. Cosby was found guilty. Three counts of felony sexual assault. And as I understand it, he could be sentenced to spend the rest of his life in prison. Could be. Uh, Bobby Allen joins us on The Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. He's a journalist for Philadelphia NPR station WHYY News. And he covered the Cosby trial. 
And you'll find him uh, on Twitter at Bobby Allen, A-L-L-Y-N. Bobby, thank you for the time. Are, are the charges essentially charges of committing rape? Has he, been convicted, has he been convicted of rape? It's not rape. In Pennsylvania, the charges, uh, uh, it's a felony sexual assault charge. It's lower than rape. It's still considered a felony. And it's, uh, as you said, you know, punishable up to 10 years behind bars for each count. And there's actually three counts. So 80-year-old Cosby does face the, the potential of, of dying in a, in a prison cell after the jury came back with a guilty verdict, guilty on all three charges. So he's definitely going to prison. I wouldn't say he's definitely going to prison. It would be very, very surprising if he wasn't. Uh, the judge said sometime between now and July there's going to be the penalty phase of Cosby's trial in which other accusers will probably take the stand against him. He might have his doctor take the stand and talk about how he's legally blind and talk about his poor health and how he's an elderly man and should be spared prison time. But because of how much international attention has been on this case and because of you know the 60 accusers who have not been able to pursue their, their, their claims in a, in a criminal court context, the judge is, is very, very likely to, to give him a sentence that includes some incarceration. Uh, if I heard this correctly, this was the first time that the three accusers have faced the ones whose cases were adjudicated. Uh, it was the first time they confronted Cosby in court. Is that right? So the complainant here, Andrea Constant, um, is the only woman who has been able to pursue charges in America against Bill Cosby, and that's because there are legal time limits in the United States that say if you report your rape or sexual assault after, say, 10, 11, 12 years, it varies state to state, it's too old to prosecute. Mm -hmm. So Andrea Constant was able to go forward with, with her claim and to bolster her account, so to support her account and to illustrate a pattern of what prosecutors said was, you know, predatory behavior, they were able to call five additional women who walked into court, went on the witness stand, and confronted Cosby for the first time about what they say was and everything from rape to sexual assault to molestation. And they all had very similar stories, right? They were people who were rising in the entertainment world who Cosby sought out. He gave them one-on-one -on -one coaching, got them in a private setting, drugged them, and then he attacked them. And some, some of the moments in the courtroom were extremely dramatic. One of the accusers looked Cosby right in the eyes in front of the jury and said, you remember this, don't you, Mr. Cosby? Meanwhile, he was wide-eyed, staring straight ahead. There was a lot of intense, dramatic moments just like that. Didn't the prosecutor also level uh, quite a strong remark at Bill Cosby after one of his lawyers tried to say something complimentary about Cosby to the jury? Um, I'm not sure exactly quite what 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 you're referring. No, to son, he, exactly. if you're looking if you're looking for a man who's a whatever it was, he's the man. Said the prosecutor, pointing at at Cosby. But it, you're, I'm I'm just assuming there was a tremendous. Oh, it must right. have been. Yeah. There must have been a oh, tremendous okay. amount of drama and and just emotion emotional release in that courtroom. No, that's right. Yeah. What 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 we're referring to is the, the main defense argument over the three week trial was that. Andrea Constant was this con artist, that she was this desperate person who was sort of a, 
a, a gold digger who just wanted to go after Cosby for the publicity and for money. She wanted to sue him civilly, which she eventually did, and she did win a $3.4 million settlement. So that was the defense, that she was motivated by dollar signs. She was motivated about enriching herself, and they kept repeatedly the defense uh, lawyers calling the, the accuser a con artist. The, the prosecutor marched over to Cosby and said, you know what? They're partially right about using that con artist term, but the real con is this man. This man sitting here is the real con. Con artist comes from the word confidence. He built confidence up with scores of women, then drugged them and attacked them. So she was able to sort of flip the con artist phrase that the defense used and weaponize it against Mr. Cosby in the courtroom. Bobby, was Bill Cosby genuinely surprised at the guilty verdicts because he lashed out at the prosecutor? That's right. I think it's hard to say. I haven't asked him personally, but I would say every observer in the courtroom was genuinely shocked. I mean, basically, we heard there was a verdict, and I and, and dozens of other reporters ran up the steps of the courtroom, went through the heavy wooden doors, and sat around waiting for the jury to come in. The jury came in slowly. The jury forewoman, who was the one leading the discussions of the 12, got up. She had, like, you know, shoulder-length, uh, grayish blonde hair, glasses, middle-aged, and she said, we reached our decision, guilty, guilty, guilty. And, you know, Cosby just had this impassive look, almost no expression. I turned to my left and looked at the accuser, Andrea Compton. She, too, had sort of a stoic expression. But then there was this burst, this outburst in the courtroom, this shriek, this woman who was just wailing that it just it just filled the entire courtroom and it was one of Cosby's accusers she was so overcome with emotion to see her attacker be finally convicted in the court of law that she was escorted out of the courtroom and even when she left you can hear her wailing it was that emotional and then the prosecutor asked that Cosby put in handcuffs immediately and and carried off to a jail cell while he awaits sentencing and the judge said what's your what's your justification for that and the prosecutor said well mr he has a private jet, and he can fly anywhere in the world. And then Cosby yelled out, I don't have a private jet, you a-hole, and used the expletive. And the judge shut him down. Everyone stood up. There was audible gasp at that, at that outburst. You're listening to The Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. Uh, but after the uh, murderous van attack in Toronto, the question becomes, for many, must we all be prepared for more attempts and mass murder in public places, whether from social misfits or organized terror groups. And our borders are being crashed by, to quote the Prime Minister, irregular entrance. So how much public safety concern should that issue raise? And then extending and expanding it a little bit, do Western governments have the interest and will to properly defend their citizens? It's not a question we're asking for the first time, and there's no one more qualified to answer that question, the one I'd rather ask, than uh, Lieutenant Colonel Steve Day, the former commanding officer of Joint Task Force 2, JTF2, and the president and founder of Radical Ventures. Colonel Day, thank you so much for the time. Roy, it's a pleasure to be back with you and your listeners again, and it seems like we're always talking when there's a tragedy, unfortunately. We are, and uh, you quite accurately told us some time ago to be prepared for more of more attacks in this country, but to also keep them in perspective. After we saw in Toronto, it's difficult to find uh, a perspective. And uh, so I'll say that. And then also that most of us 
thought at the beginning that it was more than likely going to be a terrorist attack from ISIS or al-Qaeda. We found out differently, of course. Yeah, and, and uh, I know when it first happened, a lot of people would be thinking it, it could possibly be a terrorist. Um, generally speaking, um, first reports are often wrong. And generally speaking, in Canada, as we've seen, these are more criminal in nature and more people with mental health challenges, whether it be the, the, the latest one or, as we saw, both on Parliament Hill and Quebec with uh, the van or the vehicles running down the Canadian soldiers. Yeah, Colonel Day, how do we... How do we protect ourselves as much as possible from what has been described over and over as a low-tech but deadly assault? And I think that's a, probably a, an accurate description of what, uh, of what actually took place, at least as far as the assault itself was concerned, the, the kind of assault that took place. Right. So this, this is, again, what would be known as a bit of a black swan event, which essentially are those unexpected, tragic uh, attacks that happen. And if we look at, at this event in particular, the, the attack pathway, as it's known, is a downtown city street and or adjoining sidewalk. The, the attack vector is this person with a mental health or a terrorist, whatever that may be, challenge who is attacking us when we are going about our routine daily lives. And it's, it's almost impossible to protect ourselves and harden everywhere. So I think what we need to do is keep it in perspective in terms of it is absolutely, utterly tragic for those 10 individuals, their families, and the 16 others that were hurt. But the likelihood of somebody being um, involved in one of these, fortunately in Canada, is extremely low. But to answer your question directly, Roy, I think the best thing that Canadians can do is to prepare themselves so that they ever find themselves in the middle of an event they know how to get themselves what we would call off of the X and help those people that are, are dying or injured that happen to be immediately around them. That is the best thing that Canadians can do to help themselves in these scenarios. So what's the fundamental thing that you, uh, that you might be able to have in the back of your mind if things start to go very wrong in your surroundings? Well, uh, as, we, as we talk about it, the first thing, I, and I know this is very hard to do, but uh, again, the first thing to do is not to panic, but to stop, assess, decide what you're going to do, and then act. A lot of people will immediately go into panic, which means they may be moving in the direction of the assault or maybe moving in the direction of a rescuing force and inadvertently become a casualty because of that. So the best thing to do is kind of have a plan in the first place. So stop, assess what's going on around you, decide, and then take action. If I can simplify it to that kind of what we would call sad B kind of approach, sad A approach. Mm-hmm. Colonel Day, there's uh, we also have concerns about more sophisticated attacks. Global News ran a story last weekend about a government report or maybe a series of reports expressing concerns that returning to Canada, ISIS members may pose a risk of a chemical attack. Is that something that uh, that, that you take seriously? Uh, it's it's not that I would say I don't take it seriously. I, I absolutely do because as we talked about, Roy, these are the threat vectors that we see in the 21st century. These, in some cases, returning fighters, if not appropriately apprehended at the border, or potentially some sympathizers, if not appropriately screened at the border, 
then become, you know, what's called homegrown threats or insider threats, and that is even more difficult to guard against are those threats that are inside your company, inside your place of work and or the place where you go to work every day or your daily lives. That, those are those lone wolf, those black swan events that are extremely difficult to guard against. You mentioned the border, and uh, our border is being penetrated regularly by undocumented individuals and in large numbers. They make refugee applications. And uh, most recently, last week, we found out that uh, Quebec has asked for assistance because they're just overwhelmed by the numbers. And so now individuals who are entering Quebec illegally or entering Canada in Quebec illegally are being asked if they want to, would prefer to go to Ontario, in which case they're taken to Toronto. Uh, does it worry you at all about who might be among those entering this country? The federal government doesn't seem ready to express any alarm, but I've certainly got... Uh, some antenna going up as far as I'm concerned. Well, again, I, I think if, uh, in this, irrespective of government and power, conservatives, liberals, whoever that may be, we, we grossly under-resource our national security. And when I say that, I'm talking about money, people, equipment, um, thinking, and being prepared. And, and we do that generally because we live in a very safe country. So are there potential folks that are squeaking through the borders? Uh, yes, there, there very well could be. The vast, vast majority, I would say 99.9% of these folks, are coming here seeking a better life. But I think the real challenge is if we would properly resource our security actors, then those micro percentages that could be sneaking through, at least we would be on top of them. And that's, that's part of the challenge is the known threats that we have we don't have enough resources to make sure that we're preparing and or monitoring and or watching them on any given day. No, and what we've been able to do, what we've been able to accomplish is to uh, probably demoralize some of the more experienced and more more uh, uh, proactive members of our of our military, such as perhaps members of Joint Task Force 2 or, or other special forces units, by saying, if you're off the job for X period of days, uh, then you're not going to be paid the extra danger pay that you would normally be paid, and that's a that's a that's a serious uh, hit to the bottom line of these of these professionals, and uh, they may very well go back to work before they're before they're ready to do so. Yeah, that, w- that was certainly a yeah a topic you and I had talked about last fall with the uh, the unanticipated, at least as far as I was aware, announcement of the the, the Liberal government about taking away some benefits for. Uh, across the Canadian forces, but certainly it impacts that tip of the spear, those men and women that are ready to go out the door on a moment's notice. Uh, so I, I do agree, Roy, with when we under-resource and we try to get security on the cheap, what that means is those threats that are out there, um, when they do decide to action their plan, it just means we are not as prepared to respond to them, as we should be as a first-world nation. And uh, at some point, Canadians need to send a very clear message to their government that we want to see and we want things properly resourced to those men and women, whether it be law enforcement, the security professionals, the military special operations community, let's make sure those men and women who are prepared for the ultimate sacrifice are properly equipped and uh, trained and ready to go so that we can mitigate any of these threats as we saw on uh, Tuesday in Toronto. Yeah, and one more question for you, Colonel Day. You were on missions, I'm sure, where 
99.999% of the population can't imagine what, what might have been, what your mission might have been, and what you may have had to do as, a, as the leader of the commanding officer of Joint Task Force 2. So that takes me then from the tip of the spear, the military spear, um, Canada's counterterrorism force, the Joint Task Force 2, to the people who politically lead us. And I look around the Western world and I ask myself constantly whether Western leaders are committed to protecting their citizens or are they caught up in political correctness. Is that a fair question to put out there? Well, I, I think so. And I think um, part of the challenge is, in some cases, we are lions led by lambs. And again, I would say that is a, a, a comment on the political class writ large. And I, and I do understand the political class has, only, has got a number of resources, a number of priorities are trying to balance. But the number one job of a government anywhere is the safety, security, and prosperity of their population. And in Canada, for the last 40 years, we've been doing safety and security on the cheap, and that is affecting our prosperity going forward if we don't get some true political leadership, some true political will, that allows those men and women across the security apparatus to do the things that they wish to do to keep us safe and secure. Colonel Day, thank you so much for talking to us today. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Roy, and all the best to you and your listeners again. And hopefully the next time we talk, it will not be another tragic situation inside our borders. I hope not. Thank you, Guyan. Uh, Lieutenant Colonel Steve Day, the former commanding officer of Joint Task Force 2, the tip of the Canadian military spear. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. Dan McTague joins us from GasBuddy.com, the chief analyst for gas prices for GasBuddy, our good friend Dan. What is it? What's it in Vancouver this weekend, Dan? It's 159.9 right now a liter for regular gasoline. I know that uh, when I tell this to people here in Ontario, they're uh, their eyes uh, immediately come out of their heads. Um, it's going to 161.9 at midnight tonight. So that would put uh, gasoline at about uh, almost $6 a barrel U.S., or rather $6 a gallon U.S., and by far and away the highest prices ever paid by any major city across Canada at any point, and uh, likely higher than any city in North America at any point historically, save and except a brief period of time in 2015, in Los Angeles when they had a massive fiery, uh, fire at uh, one of their principal refineries. A refinery, by the way, which has already made bids to get Canadian heavy oil. Californians love our heavy oil. They have they have uh, uh, adjusted or, or they've re- reworked their refineries to be able to refine Canadian heavy oil, have they not? Yeah, they have. And you know what? American refineries uh, who are making those investments are making uh, money hand over fist. Think of it this way, with something that's a little heavier, you can make the light stuff and you can make the heavy stuff. You can go uh, everything from uh, crude to diesel to jet fuel to gasoline, and then your light stuff, which makes styrenes, condensates, things that you use in the petrochemical, pharmaceutical industry, paints and whatnot. That's where the money's at. Unfortunately for a lot of American refiners, they don't like the tight, light shale oil because you can't produce things like diesel and jet fuel as effectively as you can with the heavy oil. So make no mistake. It's not just the price that's the incentive. It's, in fact, the product. That's why Mexican heavy oil and Iranian heavy oil is fetching nearly 70 so that's $70 a barrel, uh, not 48 like here in Canada because we have uh, 
those of their economic vandals paid very well by other nations and uh, organizations coming from abroad to disrupt our major oil sector and our number one generator of wealth in Canada. Hmm. Um, the next question is, why do we allow it? Well, I think you allow I mean, it because it's... there's really only one narrative in this country. Um, you know, whether it's children being taught that oil is bad or whether it is... Uh, uh, you know, a, a false uh, narrative by some uh, who choose to continuously pillory the fact that this is an important industry. It's uh, not just an industry that has given Canada tremendous wealth uh, over the past decade or so with the expansion of this uh, of this sector, but it's also given this generation, fossil fuels in general, has given this generation, uh, you know, a, a standard of living, uh, a longer life, better uh, way to live than any previous generation before us. And we're basically uh, casting doubt to that. We're basically saying to ourselves, oh, let's look at gift horse in the mouth. It's almost as if we're taking it for granted and allowing us, uh, you know, a very select, determined group of people out there uh, to, uh, to dissuade us. I, I find it interesting that some of the organizations behind this, ironically, are the ones who lost their monopolies many years ago. Here I'm thinking, of course, uh, of the Rockefeller Group, which uh, funds a lot of green initiatives around the world. It might sound like it's a great thing, but remember, the Rockefellers lost their uh, their control of oil back in the 1890s to the 1920 between Sherman and Clayton antitrust laws. So it's interesting that uh, what they've lost, they're trying to recover by making sure no one else gets it. I can't think of another country that would have the resources that Canada has and would say would make anybody would make an actually active effort wouldn't put in place an active effort to stop it from getting to international markets when the international markets want it when it's when it's a fairly simple it's expensive but it's not a it, 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 in, when you consider the money that would be flowing back into the country it's not i mean it's an investment it's a sound investment uh, i can't think of another country that would do what we're doing we no, we we you know no 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 wonder uh, that uh, that that email came from from seattle saying uh, well, thanks very much, but we think you're crazy. Oh, yeah. No, and look, uh, the Seattle refiners are using uh, about 10% of their oil as heavy oil. They want more of it. But let's put in perspective, $60 billion, that's B, billion-dollar loss in investments in Canada uh, over the past two years. Now, some of that, of course, is due to the downturn in, uh, in oil caused by the OPEC uh, gang, but uh, that's since come right back mm-hmm. up. But uh, no, Canada's not open for business. Think of uh, the effect of $60 billion in terms of direct and, ec- uh, and indirect economic benefits. It'd be worth a lot more than what the federal and provincial governments are spending, putting us in hawk with debts we can't repay for generations. I was reading uh, something that Frank McKenna said, the former premier of New Brunswick and uh, deputy chair of TD Bank and, uh, and um, former ambassador to, uh, to the United States for Canada. And I hope I have this correctly. Uh, in a seven-year period... That price difference between what we're selling our oil to United States for, to for whatever, and uh, and the actual world price cost us 117 or 119 billion dollars. Yeah, it's yeah, insane. It is insane, and no other country, as you know, you asked the question, no other country would allow this to happen. But I think many people are oblivious to it, and of course, there's always those uh, who will uh, try to shame or, or make people feel bad about this. There's nothing wrong with what we've done in terms of our energy sector. We are the cleanest oil producers in the world, bar none. And by the way, you think the Alaskan stuff that's coming down to feed U.S. refineries on the uh, the West Coast is any better? It's not. And uh, frankly, it uh, has the same kind of potential problems that 
uh, that they ascribe uh, as only being uh, Canadian oil, mm-hmm. uh, including the 23,000 vessels that cross in front of Victoria and Vancouver at any given time uh, to supply those American refineries. So I, I think we really have to take off our rose-colored yeah. glasses here and start questioning what is the green left-wing agenda in this country because it's driving our economy into the ground. And let's know. not forget, in 2015, 650,000 barrels a day, a day, a day. That's into true. eastern true. eastern Canadian refineries from at seventy bucks a barrel versus from, yeah, 40, from devious countries. Yeah, Montreal doesn't have. A I problem. only have sixty seconds, Mr. Matei. Go ahead. Yeah. Montreal doesn't have a problem taking our oil. We've reversed the pipeline. We're bringing a lot of heavy oil into uh, Ontario, uh, right across Manitoba, Ontario, and right to Montreal. Heavy oil, heavy Alberta oil. So you can't have it both ways. You hate pipelines, but you don't mind getting them once they're built. Uh, you know, if the environmentalists block Line 5 and Bridge, get ready, Roy, in three or four weeks, you and I are going to have a nice discussion about uh, how you can shut down Canadian refineries in eastern Canada. And it'll be more than 650,000 barrels that we're bringing in just to make ends meet. A buck 62 in Vancouver come uh, tomorrow? Yeah, tonight, midnight. Tomorrow. So get ready. <laughs> it's, uh, and to an area that uh, that is uh, unfortunately seeing a lot of protests, I guess people are going to start to take that into consideration. Uh, yeah. no, no help, help no, uh, no less by... The Horgan government, the coalition government between the Greens that added another 1.22 cents a litre in carbon taxes. But we'll get to that soon because, of course, Canadians are starting to wake up to that uh, uh, that uh, that sham. You're listening to The Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. I promised I wouldn't uh, spend any appreciable time talking about these incel creeps. And I won't. But uh, we do have to we do have to cover it a little bit. And uh, I'm just wondering just how much of an influence this Elliot Roger in California, who committed mass murder in 2014 as a so-called incel, how much influence he might have um, in in the rest of the world. I've been hearing from people that they've they've been seeing on uh, on message boards online all sorts of talk by uh, involuntarily celibate. Dr. Frank Farley is the former president of the American Psychological Association. He joins us on the Roy Green Show. Frank, how far gone do you have to be to be psychologically um, able to commit an act like that of Elliot Roger in California? I can't speculate on the accused in Toronto because he's charged. But how far gone do you have to be to do what Elliot Roger did, which was to kill six people and, 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 and wound many more in his gun attack? Because he's an incel. Well, you got to be pretty far gone. And uh, the, one of the oldest theories of violence is the frustration-aggression theory. And uh, he was a very uh, frustrated uh, young man, you know. And, and the whole incel thing has to do primarily with men who don't seem to be able to relate to women. They can't get dates. Uh, they come to hate the men who can get those things, and so they uh, are frustrated to the point of, uh, of violence is, is one uh, way of looking at it. And, um, uh, of course, one of the key things with him, Roy, was that he broadcasted ahead of time. And, you know, That's right, he did, a, didn't he? He did. Oh, there's a video of him driving to yeah, the yeah, heart yeah, yeah. of Santa Barbara to, do, to start shooting women from his car, and uh, he's broadcasting it online, and it was not picked up. He could have been stopped. Frank, how do individuals who commit such acts justify their actions to themselves? Is there not a, is there not a, a, a part of their brains that lets them understand fully and clearly 
this is wrong. And there must oh. be there must be incels who are looking at Elliot Roger, and if this individual in Toronto is found guilty, and I can't presume whether he is or isn't, will say these acts were wrong. Well, I hope not. that some uh, in the incel community are saying things like that, and I trust that some most certainly are. But uh, I hate to say it, there is no valid science at this point of incel behavior uh, or of mass shootings uh, in and of themselves. And we desperately need more scientific research on this, or we'll continue this conversation, Roy, for the next hundred years. We really need to get to the bottom of it scientifically. But, you know, if you examine the websites, the incel websites, there's some pretty rough stuff. You know, they call it going ER, Elliot Roger. And um, uh, one that was quoted in the Globe and Mail was, you know, saying that if you go ER, you'll basically be immortalized and live on forever since people will speak about you for decades. So that brings in the idea of fame as well. So granting them group status is counterproductive publicly. In a sense, yes, I do agree with that, yeah. But in the Internet age, you know, you can go online and find fellow travelers on almost any aspect of human behavior. Mm -hmm. And that sort of validates it for the the, the individuals involved. They feel, I'm not alone. Other people feel the same way. And, um, and, I, and it grows. So, you know, the, the fame aspect of it, um, it's, it's almost a, a new wrinkle on the gender wars, you know, and uh, a very um, deadly wrinkle yeah. on the, 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 the long-running gender wars that we have. Frank, let me ask you one more question. Is there, an, is there any way to identify individuals who might be capable of committing a gross act of violence? If, if somebody knows that, some, that an individual, that a man has these feelings, is there a way to say, okay, this guy could be ready to cross the line? No. Um, at least my view is no at this point. And we simply have not studied enough of them. Often they end up dead you know, uh, at their own hand or at the hand of the authorities. And so very few of them have been extensively studied. And so we, we really can't say too much about origins and prevention, Okay. Uh, you know, what leads to it and how we're going to stop it. All right. Frank, it's always good talking to you. Thank you for the time. You're welcome. Dr. Frank Farley, former head of the American Psychological Association. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. You know, there are, um, there are times I receive uh, correspondence. It's uh, a letter, an email, phone call, a tweet which leads to a phone call, and it's one of those oh-my-God moments. And uh, that was what I felt when I received an email from my next guest, his name is Dave, he's in Saskatchewan. I'm not going to tell the story, I'm just going to set it up and then we'll talk to Dave. Dave's wife uh, suffered from terrible pain for more than 20 years and nothing helped. Opioids didn't help, nothing helped. And uh, she decided that she didn't want to live any longer. And so she applied for a medically assisted death. And it's the MAID program, 
M-A-I-D, Medical Assistance in Dying. And I'm just going to read you the criteria in order to be eligible for a medically assisted death in Canada. You must be eligible for health services funded by the federal government or a province or territory. Generally, visitors to Canada are not eligible for medical assistance in dying. That's number one. Number two, be at least 18 years old and mentally competent. This means being capable of making health care decisions for yourself. Number three, have a grievous and irremediable medical condition. Number four, make a voluntary request for medical assistance in dying that is not the result of outside pressure or influence. And number five, give informed consent, receive medical assistance in dying. And then they spell out what grievous and irremediable medical conditions are. You must have a serious illness, disease, or disability, be in an advanced state of decline that cannot be reversed, experience unbearable physical or mental suffering from your illness, disease, disability, or state of decline that cannot be relieved under conditions that you consider acceptable, be at a point where your natural death has become reasonably foreseeable, this takes into account all of your medical circumstances and does not require a specific prognosis as to how long you have left to live. Now, that's an important part in Dave's story, and he joins us from Saskatchewan. Dave, thank you for um, for having enough trust in me to share this, your story and your wife's story. It's It's heart-wrenching, and I know you want to tell the story because you want people to be aware of what the realities are that you can face. So thank you for coming on the air. Well, thanks, Roy. Um, I appreciate that. Yeah, um, I guess that's um, the reason for contacting you is to let people know um, how made uh, fails certain people in in Canada and, and how um, we can try and, and, I guess, change that fourth criteria or at least to make it um, better understood. Like, it's... Uh, it's very vague, and um, and I guess with my wife Cecilia, um, it was too vague. And when they refused her, and, and um, so that's what I'm trying to do right now. Right. Well, well let's get Try into and get let's the see. government to, to look at that. And you contacted the federal justice minister, and she wrote oh, back yeah. to you. And yeah. I'm not impressed with the response that you received from the minister. <laughs> And neither well, are you. And this happened. It was, it was cold. It was cold. You're absolutely right. It was cold. And this happened. Your your wife passed away in January of this year, right? Yes. Would you January. just? I'm sorry. Uh, g- give us the background uh, information. What was your wife? What were the conditions your life was wife was living with? What did she tried, and why did she no longer want to live? Well, like you mentioned at the beginning, she was suffering from fibromyalgia for 20-plus years. Um, She finally found a a great doctor that um, diagnosed her and then tried to dial in her meds. And like you mentioned, she was was on the morphine pills, medical marijuana, a whole slew. I called her my pharmacist because she, she tried all these pain medications, and it wasn't working. And so her quality of life just um, was not very good. 
And for her, it was really, really bad, I guess. And so she decided to, to apply to NAID. And uh, you mentioned the four criteria, and she qualified for the first three. She met those criteria, and it was the fourth one, which was um, your natural death has become reasonable foreseeable. And uh, that's so vague. Like, what does that mean, um, reasonable foreseeable? Because I remember the day that uh, the doctor from the maid board phoned her and said she didn't qualify because her death wasn't imminent. And she said, I really beg to differ because my death is imminent. Because if you don't qualify this, then I'm going to take my own life within the next six months. And she did. And um, because of that, it was so much uncertainty. Um, her biggest fear was uh, ending up in the hospital. She had DNRs. Uh, she had three posted in the apartment and very specific that um, nothing was to be done. Um, it's no hydration, no feeding tube, anything like that. So her, her biggest fear was going to uh, the uh, taking her own life wouldn't have worked and she would have ended up in the hospital with no fluids and it would have taken her uh, two weeks to die uh, from dehydration and that was her biggest fear and as it turned out um, that didn't happen um, but if she had met that fourth criteria with her death being imminent um, she would have been in a controlled situation she would have known that she would have died that day. Um, we could have had uh, uh, everybody that's important in her life around her. And, and at no sorry. time, at no time did, did they say you don't qualify because we don't think your situation is sufficiently grave that that you uh, should have an assisted I, death. Not that I know of. I don't know. Um, she kept kept all that information really close to the hip um all like all her research in how to uh take your own life all the research for made um partly i guess to, to so i wouldn't be involved um because that's important uh, yeah, very, as it turned yeah. out. It yeah. was very yeah. important. Yeah. And a denial on my part. I mean, she's the love of my life. We've been married for over 30 years, and really, it's it's that bad, and, and you have to do this. And, and so I'm still trying to come to grips with that part of it. And um, so because of the failure of made, and even though um, she met the first three criteria, criteria and her death wasn't foreseeable according to the board it was foreseeable according to her because her like i said her quality of yeah. just wasn't good enough and i can't i can't ima I, I can't imagine what it would have been like for you to know that your wife was going to do this having traveled the journey the pain journey with her you, you would know what she was going through yeah but you're right yeah. you you can't you can't be in even even peripherally involved in any way in no. uh, in in the decision she makes and the f the manner in which she decided to end her life, she wanted to end her life in a have her life ended in a controlled well, medical manner, 
And that was not to be for the reason you pointed out. You're listening to The Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. Dave, what happened on the, uh, I, I hate to put you through this, but. You wanted me to. You wanted to talk about this. I don't know quite how to approach this. What happened the day that your wife died? Well, um, got up in the morning. Um, she had a checklist made. Uh, she was a lady of lists because um, there was a little bit of denial on my part. But um, I went to the bedroom, eleven thirty, and I heard the coffee grinder going, and I knew, oh this is it because she's grinding up her meds because she had like i said done a lot of research and so she took her meds with um vanilla pudding um followed by uh screwdriver a lot of vodka okay let's not get into the actual details too much i don't want to provide people with the okay with the recipe so um so she came to bed um um I held her for two hours and 15 minutes and took her to stop reading. Um, phone 911, they came. Um, um, no pulse. Um, I was arrested, taken down to the police station, treated very professionally by uh, the police. Um, no complaints there at all, but they had to do their due diligence because it was a death outside of a hospital. And I was a prime suspect. Um, I was uh, talking to it being interviewed by a sergeant. He mentioned that this is the first case that he's ever seen in 30-some years of police work in, in here. And um, so um, eventually they let me go. Uh, well, not back to my apartment because there was a whole bunch of people in there processing the scene. I got in the next day, got my phone back, um, my clothes back, um, they transported uh, Cease down to the hospital for an autopsy. Um, weekend busy, so it wasn't until Monday. They released her body Monday um, to the funeral home, and, and that was it. So a very um, drawn-out day. Um, but She uh, died in your was. arms. She died in your arms. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I laid there for two hours and 15 minutes waiting for her to stop breathing, and in those two hours, I'm thinking, when do I phone 911? Because she didn't want to uh, prolong her death in a hospital, and uh, so all those thoughts going through my head. And But after 15 minutes, she closed her eyes, two hours, um, she stopped breathing. So if you can call it that, it was a good death, and it was exactly how she wanted to be, but she didn't know. Um, so she just, she had those DNRs, she was very prepared for when the paramedics arrived, she had a, a suicide note, um, to help with, I guess, the policing part, and, um, that was it, in a nutshell, and, um, so she died that day. Must have been, uh, tortuous for you not to call police, call 911, and get help for her while she was dying, even though she told you... Not to do that. Well, actually, no. Um, I mean, that sounds pretty careless, but I loved her enough for her to do that because I knew that's what she wanted. She did not want uh, to be resuscitated, hence the three DNRs um, on the apartment. 
uh, one at the bed, uh, one on the fridge, one on the front door. Um, she was quite adamant about that. And because of my love for her, I let, I allowed that. And so it wasn't really hard, actually. It was um, because of my love that and that's what you do for people. Yeah. And you'd and you'd been married for thirty years, and she'd been struggling for twenty of those thirty years. Yeah. The yeah. police. So the police have completed their investigation. They've yes. They've 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 stepped away now. So yes. so the situation now is that the crown attorney has your case, and the yes. crown attorney has the option to do what? Um, that's what I was told um, by the police that um, they have up to six months to prosecute me. So. For not providing the, the necessaries of life would be the yes, charge, that was right? it. That's what I was charged with, failure, failure to provide the necessities of life. So you write uh, a letter to the federal justice minister, mm-hmm. and you inform the federal justice minister about your wife's death, mm-hmm. all the steps that you've explained, mm-hmm. and you make the case for people having... Being treated, but the legislation treating them properly and, and providing granting what the what the person wishes. Yes. And you received, as you said, a cold email back. Well, dear, dear, uh, dear, yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Kind of like a form letter, I guess, but not really. Yeah. It says, "Dear Dave." Your, your last name. Says, yeah, I, I sympathize yeah. with your difficulties, with the difficulties that you have experienced. That is just so cold. The difficulties you've experienced and realize the situation has been distressing for you. I'm not even going to read the rest of it because that says it all. It's just, it's, it's a throwaway email to you. How do you feel? Uh, Frustrated. Um, Because of all the uncertainty surrounding my wife's death. It could have been, um, um, less stressful for everybody involved, for her, for me, um, for our kids. Uh, how are your ki- How are your kids dealing with it? Good. Um, she let She let her kids know. Um, well, I shouldn't say good. What, <laughs> I no, I understand. I understand what you, I know. What you, I know what you mean. Um, I, they're coping with it. I guess um, it It would have affected them really hard. Yeah, but. Yeah, um, of course. I mean, it does. But um, I just wanted to say that that Cece had, had jumped through all the hoops. She was of sound mind. Um, she had seen over half a dozen psychologists, psychiatrists, uh, counselors, um, and um, she was not uh, depressed. She uh, was not mentally ill. She was of sound mind, and and she had to have been to have carried this out, because she left lists for me to do after she had died. You don't apply for CPP death benefit and all right. that stuff. I mean, right. like I mentioned before, she is a lady of lists. Yeah. And um, Dave, I'm sorry, somebody, but we're we're going to have go to ahead. we're going to have to end it there because okay. we've come to the end of the segment. But I'm going to stay in touch with you personally, and uh, we'll uh, we'll update our, our listeners on your situation and. Uh, We'll talk again soon, very soon. Yep. All the very best to you. Thank you very much. Take care. Thanks for listening to Lisa's story.
It's very important. It is. Thank you, Dave. I do understand. I received uh, Dave's email on the third anniversary of my wife dying, and I sent him a note back at 1 o'clock in the morning. This is the Roy Green Show podcast.